You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants here for our Byzantine lectionary reflection for the Sunday of St. John of the Ladder, our father, St. John Climacus. We have a few uh, biblical texts we'll be going over. Mark chapter 9, verse 17 through 31, the healing of the possessed boy. And Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. So let's jump right in here to our text. Mark chapter 9, verse 17 through 31. Mark 9, 17 through 31. At that time, one of the crowd came to Jesus and bowed to him, saying, Master, I have brought to you my son, who has a dumb spirit, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he is wasting away. And I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him in the spirit. When it saw Jesus, immediately threw the boy into convulsions, and he fell down on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long is it since this has come upon him? And he said, from his infancy. Oftentimes it, th- it has thrown him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. But Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to the man of faith. At once the father of the boy cried out and said with tears, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Now when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, go out of him and enter him no more. And crying out and violently convulsing him, it went out of him. And he became like one dead, so that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he stood up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind can can be cast out in no way except by prayer and fasting. And leaving that place, they were passing through Galilee, and he did not wish anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And having been killed, he will rise again on the third day. Father Sebastian, we usually do ask you to just give us the the context in which this falls in chapter 9 in the broader context of the gospel. Sure. So Mark chapter 9 is the end of his Galilean ministry. So it's from John's gospel. We know that Jesus's ministry was about three years long uh, (laughs) before the, uh, his passion, death and resurrection in Jerusalem. But Mark, as with Matthew and Luke, don't tell us how long it was. They just tell us about this period 
which in which Jesus is healing and teaching. And it closes with chapters 8 and 9 of, of the gospel here. And so in chapter 10, in fact, in chapter 10, he has left Galilee and has headed into Judea. And so, of course, that begins more uh, precisely that that trip to Jerusalem. But anyway, we're coming to a close here. And I and as we've talked about before, and you see here, I think, in the context of this story, Jesus is training these guys. This Galilean ministry, this period is a period of, it's the Galilean boot camp. Right? He's preparing these men for something. Often we think that Jesus came, you'll see a t-shirt, his pain, my gain, you know, or something. And we got the idea that Jesus came to die for my sins. Well, if that's the case, then if he just came to die for our sins, then, then it would have been very convenient for him to die at the hands of the Herodian soldiers, you know, when he was a baby or I mean, something like that. Jesus could have died. Why was he, why did he avoid death when they tried to push him off a cliff in Nazareth? Well, because he still had work to do. He was establishing the kingdom of God. And the whole idea that he came to save me from my sins is a very anti-church anti-communal, very Protestant idea and very recent. He came to found, to reestablish the kingdom of God. And as a result of that, he died. They killed him. Let's be clear about that. But God raised him from the dead, as Acts says. But on the way, in the process of establishing the kingdom of God, he was doing something, is what Adam was supposed to be doing in the garden. He was teaching these disciples, these men, the ways of God. He was showing them by example, by watching, listening, how they were expected once they become him through the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, how they are to go out and teach and preach and exercise and all of these things. You know, Father, I'm going to ask you to apply this to this, this particular Sunday in Lent, uh, why it's, it's placed here for us. But uh, I think it's important before before I ask you to do that it, to to remind ourselves of the power of faith. And I, you know, we read these words in the gospel as I oftentimes say in the study that we have to slow down and ask ourselves, you know, what are the meaning of these words to make sure we understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying. He says it's very important that there's a, there's a problem here, and the problem isn't this possessed boy. The problem is a lack of faith. And it's not a lack of faith on the boys' part. And this is, I'm, I'm glad you brought up this thing about the importance of the, the community, the power of the community. Because here in this case, the, the, the father doesn't say, or, uh, um, uh, or I'm sorry, Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, um, you know, this, this, this boy has to have more faith to be healed. Right? He says, he, he comes and looks at the faith of the apostles, and he looks at the faith of the father. Okay, and there's a big difference. Sadly, there's a, there's a big difference between the two, right? There's a lack of there's a lack of faith among the apostles, and there's a struggle for faith with the Father. But there's also I don't want to just paint the apostles t- totally negative because they they're they're seeking what needs to be done here. He says this kind can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. So you know, for those that are considering this text, just, it's a good, it's a good practice to stop in situations like this. Ask yourself why, if you can answer questions like who, what, why, where, and when during your reading of the gospel, um, you're going to get, you're going to get 99% of the way there to, to interpreting the text. So this is a, this is an important question. 
what is what is faith? Okay, why is it so powerful? And how does prayer and fasting have to do with with faith? Where does it how does it tie in? So if you're out there doing your study, I'd push pause and actually see if you can answer those questions. Because if you can answer questions like that, you're gonna be well on your way to being able to read the the scriptures with with prophets. So I'm just gonna give you a very quick answer to this whole thing. That faith. Uh, maybe in the most basic kind of basic uh, understanding, faith is the total gift of myself to to the one in whom I, I believe myself and trust myself. Okay, um, and, and in that act, in that act, I unite myself to the one I believe in. Okay, I accept what they say, I accept their insights, I accept what what they see, because in faith, the uh, the person I believe myself to and trust myself to sees on their own what I cannot otherwise see. Okay, and so when we're talking about faith in God. I'm a faith in Christ. It's a total unity of myself, uh, my intellect, my will, my whole, my whole, my whole, my life, my spirit to him. And in that, the two become one. Uh, it's a covenant union. And when that happens, his life becomes my life. This is why Jesus can say that, that it's so powerful. Okay. That, that the one who believes can accomplish really anything. And, and how does prayer and fasting participate in this or is, how is it related? Prayer is my conversation with God. Fasting is the, re, or the, uh, the reprioritization of my life that I might place my, the dependency of my life. We are dependent beings, but throughout the year, we constantly become dependent upon other things, whether it be food or entertainment or sleep or whatever. It's the reprioritization of my life so that my dependencies become dependent on most important things upon God himself. So, so fasting creates in us this union, which, which faith accomplishes. Okay. Prayer is the conversation which happens when that unity takes place. Okay. The, and, and when I, and when I share something, by the way, in our, like our study right now, my brother and I are sharing something which is ours with you. When that happens, what is ours becomes yours. So you can literally turn off the computer now. And if you've listened and participated and internalized what we've said, what the, the information we've shared with you is now yours. It's no longer just ours. Do you see? What was ours is now yours. So something of us is in you. And that happens in conversation. Conversation unites the person. The two parties become one in conversation. Okay. So this, this reality of our total union with Christ and when we have a total union with him, then uh, the power of God um, be becomes ours. We are divinized, as St. Peter says. Um, and, uh, and we begin to live the divine life. The divine life itself is a healing life. It's one which has no end. It's one which cannot die. It's one which lives forever. It's one which is the life of the resurrection. As uh, St. Paul says, that death no longer has dominion over Christ in, in Romans chapter six. And therefore we can say that death no longer has dominion over us. Faith then accomplishes resurrection. And we can see that story right in front of us, father. I'm going to turn to you now back to this, this question I want to ask you. And that is wh where this gospel fits now in our, in the context of our, our journey of Lent. All right. Yeah, sure. The, um, it's obviously intimately related to everything you were just saying. The, the story is a typical, exorcism story or possession story we hear out about these in all four gospels uh someone's possessed jesus cleanses them of their possession he exercises them and but this all the stories it's not like they're all just the same just kind of this always just regularly happens but they're, they're all unique but what makes this one unique 
is that you have this man who, who says, help me, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And, and then also you have this reference to prayer and fasting. And then this is closer to what you get in most of the stories, but this is very clear here. This, this boy has had this since his infancy, this problem. And then all of a sudden you have an image of his death. He's, the exorcism has happened. There's a death and then this resurrection image. Now the boy, as far as we can tell, doesn't actually die in the story. I mean, it's possible. That's what happened. But it says that he looked like he was dead. Everyone thought, but Jesus lifted him up. Whatever actually physically happened to that boy, we can't, we weren't there 2000 years ago to analyze it medically, but but it is obvious that Mark is intending us to see something there in that story of the boy that is related to what he says at the very end of this reading is that is Jesus is going to die and rise from the dead. So this boy's rising, this boy's exorcism, his, his at least image of death and resurrection being raised up by Jesus and is related, Mark shows us, to what is going to happen to Jesus. Jesus is going to do for all of us, and this is where uh, this fits in for our catechumenal process. Jesus is going to do for the catechumens uh, in a few weeks what he has done for that boy. And he's, he's going to do it for that boy, for us, by the power of his own death and resurrection. We're going to participate in that. And how do we prepare for that? How do we accept that? How do we understand that? How is that actually going to accomplish something in our life? How are we going to be exercised as the catechumen? Or is how the, how's the catechumen going to be exercised from now until that great day of Pascha when it comes through prayer and fasting? And as we know from the early catechumenal process, this is where our Lenten journey comes from, right? It's originally the prayer and fasting, the process of prayer, fasting, and exorcisms uh, of the catechumen over a 40-day process preparing for their baptism. We have remnants of that even in our, in our baptismal liturgy of these, of these exorcisms and, and the rest. And of course, any of our uh, listeners who have read some, you know, the writings of Cyril, Jerusalem, his mystagogical catechesis, or anything by uh, Schmemann, Great Lent, and, and the rest know about this early church process and how the early church and the Christians themselves realize that, hey, you know, we're all catechumens, right? We're all always in a process of discipleship, of continuing to learn. And really, we're all penitents, because the penitents also participate in these things of the catechumens. Those were who were, who were uh, repenting of great sin after their baptism. And so, really, all Christians are, I know I am, a continual catechumen and a continual penitent. And so I can renew or, uh, or walk through this journey with the catechumen and renew in myself through the grace of God what took place originally at, at the time when I was baptized. And the, the, um, the prayer and fasting fits in well in this, in this gospel with our celebration of the memory of St. John Climacus the great father of prayer in our tradition. St. John Climacus uh, is known for many things, but and his, his reference to the ladder, his uh, the ladder of divine ascent, but 
St. John Climacus, at least for me, and I, and I think it's very important for us to remember in this prayer and fasting, his great teaching on prayer. We often, when we pray, do not pray the way he told us to pray. He says prayer uh, is, should be triune. He says it should start out first with praise and thanksgiving to God, acknowledgement of who God is. And once we've done that in our life, we've thanked him for everything around us. We look at everything we've got, the roof of our head, the full belly, whatever it is we've got. And we just realize how much God has blessed us in great abundance. And we thank him for that and we praise him for that. Then once we've done that, acknowledged who God is and what he's done in our lives, then we look at ourselves and realize who we are and who we haven't, what we have not lived up to in the image likeness of the God we praise and, and we have not appreciated, we have not done what we should, should have been doing. So the, the second part of prayer for St. John Climacus is confession, right, of, of realizing our own inadequacy based upon the great image of, of the one we have just looked upon. We look in the mirror now. And then third, St. John Climacus says, then we ask for that which we need. Then, we, then there's the petition. Mm-hmm. Then there's the petition. And then we ask for what we need. Right, and usually at that point, if we've if we've used that formula, that order, then everything's properly ordered. So what we pray now, when we ask for what we need, it's usually going to be very different from what we would have asked for in a different context. We will ask for, "Oh God, help me to be to live up to the life you know that you've called me to. Help me to appreciate what you've given me. Help me to help those around me. Help." help those around me who need your help. It's those kind of, I mean, those kinds of petitions, but that's not the way we usually ask or the content of our petitions, right? It's usually, it's not who God is, who we are, and then what we think we need. It's usually flipped around, right? It's what we think we need, who we are and who God is, right? Oh God, I need a Maserati. I know I don't deserve it, but you are a great God. Right? And so what we end up doing is asking for things that's not in light of who God is and who we are. This, we start with that, right? And this is what Adam did in the garden, right? Didn't have things properly ordered. And I think that's what you were talking about earlier. There. Thank you, Father. I'm glad you brought in uh, St. John. It's, it's important that we're bringing, we're, we're approaching this Sunday in this kind of holistic manner and giving thanks to the Lord and, and, and allowing the great saints that are making this journey with us to be present and a real, a real participant in that journey and effectively guiding us in that journey. You know, one last thing I want to just mention before we move on to the epistle, and that is, we've already brought it up, and that is the importance of, of, this com- of the community and the power of faith of the Father for the sake of His Son. And how important it is that we're journeying along with the catechumens uh, along the way. I know in some, of our, in some of our communities, if there's not a catechumen present, we don't pray the catechumen prayers. But, you know, I think this is, I, I think, a, a bit of a mistake because there, we are in a, a greater community that is dependent, interdependent upon one another for the, the power of prayer and the power of faith. And I know one of, uh, one of uh, the priests of our eparchy uh, said very beautifully, he says, if you struggle in faith, he says, don't worry. There's enough faith in this church to make up for your lack of faith. Similar with the uh, image of the paralytic who was carried by his friends to the feet of Christ. And because of their faith, the man was healed. And similarly here, 
Uh, and similarly in our journey of, of Great Lent, those of us who are counted worthy of Holy Baptism, worthy of the Holy Eucharist, who've been given these great gifts of, of participation in the divine life, journey along with those that are, that are waiting and support them in their journey of faith through our faith. And so it's important to remember that this whole journey of Lent is a very much a return to God's original plan. And that is a plan of unity with the Holy Trinity, who is manifest on this earth in our relationships with one another. One another. That's God's original plan in paradise and in the restoration of that plan in the establishment of the church. Father, let's move on now to, to our epistle, to the Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Okay. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. Brethren, when God made his promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply you. And so after patient waiting, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and an oath given as a guarantee is the final settlement of all their disagreements. Hence God, meaning to show more abundantly to the, heir of the heirs of the promise, the firmness of his will imposed an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to deceive, we may have the strongest comfort. We who have sought refuge in holding fast the hope set before us. This hope we have as a sure and firm anchor of the soul, reaching even behind the veil, where our forerunner Jesus has entered for us, as he became a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Father, speak to us about the context here in Hebrews chapter 6. So this is Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, or if it's not Paul, it's someone related to Paul. The audience here, the Hebrews, are, these are Jewish Christians, probably in Judea, could be anywhere else, but most likely this is Paul writing to the Jewish Christians in Judea. The, the audience we know are Jewish Christians. Not only does the tradition give us the title to the epistle in this way, but as you read the epistle, you can see that the author assumes the audience knows the Old Testament like the back of their hand. They know it well. And so it is a very complex theologically and rhetorically rich epistle in which he makes some very complex and beautiful arguments from the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all things. You know, Father, the, 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 um, on first reading over this, there's one thing that really jumps out to you, and that is that God has made a promise. He's making a, a covenant, an oath with us. Uh, you know, it's spoken to us in terms of his promise to Abraham. But what is the content of that promise what is that you know if we think of a of a covenant as uh the sharing between two i always think when i think of covenant as marriage covenant um that and the two become one flesh in this in this maybe in a very superficial term a contract but a covenant's much deeper and much more much more than that what is the content of this gift this sharing that god is promising 
So the, if we go back and we look, the, the promise, the call of Abraham is the, is the model for all this. So we could turn back to uh, chapter 12 of Genesis. This is where Abraham is called. It starts a little bit earlier in the previous chapter, but this is usually understood to be the, the most important text to understand Abraham and his calling. And it is the text also that the New Testament authors, authors constantly quote. So I think we're on good ground to look at that. So it says in, in Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country, from your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So here it is. I will bless you and your name great that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who curse you, I will curse. And by you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So blessing, 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 blessing. So the promise to Abraham in the end, if we read through the whole Abrahamic narrative, it's that God has promised that he would bless him. And, and as we read the story, we can see God is blessing him. And then that blessing, of course, will continue even into the descendancy of Abraham. So the question, of course, is, well, what does it mean to bless? What do we mean? Well, when God blesses, what does this mean? Well, he's, he's sharing himself. With, with his creation. He is, he is loving his creation in, in this mysterious as that may be. What does that mean? Well, the, some concrete examples are when we go to Genesis chapter one, the first time we hear about God blessing is a reference to life. It says, God blessed the animals, said fruitful and, be, and multiply. And then he blessed mankind, said be fruitful and multiply. <clears throat> Being fruitful and multiply is a reference to the the abundance of life in this creation and the continued abundance, the continuing of that creation in a certain sense, that life of God being shared with all creation. So when God blesses Abraham, he's promising him, he promises him that he will bless him and the blessing is the gift of life. He will give to Abraham life. This is why the blessing of Abraham is through uh, that you will have many, you will have children like this, the sands, the seashore, the stars, the heavens, and, and through them, through your seed, all the nations shall be blessed. So this gift of, of life, this gift of life uh, is being given. And ultimately, in the end, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, that, that the, the, the seed of Abraham through which the nations shall be blessed, the seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham, through whom all the nations will, all peoples will be blessed, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is that seed of Abraham through whom the blessings come. And this brings us, of course, to what he says later on in the epistle or in this, our reading here. He says he's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which reminds us of the Abraham story. For us, we might not think of these two statements together, but for sure the author sees the relevance here. When God promised to Abraham that he would bless him, and that ultimately the whole purpose of all this was not only that he would have life, that, but that all of mankind would have at least the opportunity for life. He's, he sends Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So God promised he would bless Abraham, but in the story, Melchizedek is the one through whom the blessing comes upon Abraham. And then that begins the, the covenantal narrative of the story of Abraham in chapters 15 and 17, 21 and 22. So the the author here tells us that Jesus is the is Melchizedek. 
And this isn't just like some sort of abstract idea. Melchizedek was the priest and king of Jerusalem. And as far as we can see from the fathers, St. Ephraim and others, he was the son of, of Noah. So that this blessing that came from Adam all the way into Noah through Shem has continued on to Abraham. This blessing that came ultimately from God, this ultimate blessing of life. And so Melchizedek is the one, the priest and king of Jerusalem, through whom Abraham is blessed. Or we could say, through whom the blessing of life, the gift of life, comes to Abraham. And so Jesus, we find, is, as we read in the New Testament, we find references to him to being this new priest and king of Jerusalem. David, of course, inherited this throne when he went into Jerusalem. And so David inherited that priesthood of Melchizedek, that throne, the priestly king uh, of Jerusalem. And so Jesus now, the, the priest and king of Jerusalem, like Melchizedek, offers up bread and wine. And through that offering of the bread and wine at the mystical supper, which continues into our celebrations today, the blessing of God through Melchizedek, or the blessing of God through he who is Melchizedek fulfilled, and is himself the seed of Abraham. All in one is that through which we then are blessed. We are blessed through Jesus, who is both the one through whom the blessings come to Abraham and the seed upon which the blessings come and that seed of Abraham through which God said, all the blessings, all the nations shall eventually be blessed. That is, have life. So if, if blessing is the giving of God's life to those, to people and to things which are blessed, which I signed up by I, I this is a very simple and understandable way of understanding because the priest blesses he blesses the bread he blesses the wine he blesses the oil he uh, uh he blesses the people and in all of these actions the things are filled with god's life and this is why we kiss them and we and reverence them and so forth but then saint paul begins to talk about hope and in this way he's he kind of begins to look forward uh, hope is always hope in something which I don't, you know, that I, that I expect. And so. so there's a couple different ways that Paul talks about the future second coming of Christ and the purpose of that. And a few, he talks about uh, our inheritance, which is to come. He'll talk about our hope. He'll talk about our future glory and things like that. And in the end, this is all talking about the same thing. Our hope, and as you, we can read in the epistle of the Hebrews, there's this whole theme of hope throughout the whole epistle. These Jewish Christians are suffering. Some are being put to death by their fellow Jews in Judea. And so Paul talks about hope. Hope, how all the way back to Abraham, Noah, all the way back to Adam, he shows through faith, through faith, they have had hope. Through belief and trust in God, they have hope. Hope for what? Hope for what? And if you read Paul's epistles, he says this a lot. Our future hope, our hope and our, our future inheritance, our glory to come. And he's talking about our hope in Jesus, our hope in the risen Lord. He is our resurrection. So Jesus has died. And he has been raised from the dead. Okay, so we all may face death. We face persecution like he did. We may face all sorts of things, even martyrdom. 
as Christians have throughout history, and even, even as we speak right now, there are Christians suffering martyrdom in Syria and other places in the world. But we have hope that if we have been baptized into him, have been given the gift of, of the Spirit through the laying out of hands, and therefore have become a new creation in Christ, we have then received his body and blood, of which he says, he eats my flesh and drinks my blood as life, and my raise up on the, last, on the last day. Then we have a hope in a future bodily resurrection. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our resurrection. Jesus is our future glory because we have become Jesus. He has, Jesus has become man, died and raised from the dead. And he has taken that body into the heavenly realm, back into the presence of God. In Hebrews here, he describes as a, as a, into the, into the inner veil, into the, temple in heaven which is this is metaphorical language talking about into the glory of god as a forerunner he says as a forerunner and he says this a number of places in hebrews as a forerunner on our behalf jesus has gone in before he's he's gone where we expect to go he has done what we expect to do and and I, this ties in nicely with the theme of prayer that we're looking at today and in the Earlier in the epistle, earlier in the epistle to the Hebrews, he had said this about this going in as a forerunner and this veil and this and our hope. He says this, if, if we could turn to this, yeah. one of my most favorite passages in all the epistles of the Hebrews. It's related ultimately to what he just said, because he says this a number of times, Jesus has gone into the inner veil. He's gone into the, into the holy of holies of the heavenly temple as he's returned to God with our body, which is a hope of something for the future, right? That someday he will come back with that body and raise our bodies from the dead, and God will come to dwell with us, just like we already are seeing that happen right now. God and man dwelling together for all eternity in Jesus. But I think when we hear that kind of language, we get this idea, Jesus is God. Jesus is, Jesus is out there, right? So he says in chapter 4, this is earlier in the epistle, he said this, chapter 4, I'm sorry, I said chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 14. This is chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great great high priest, right? The Melchizedek, who has passed through the heavens. Right? Jesus, the Son of God, right? he has gone into the holy of holies of the heavenly temple, into the presence of God, Jesus, the Son of God. Since that, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sinning. He's become one with us. Let us then, right, based upon this information that he's just said, let us then, therefore, based upon that, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Now, the throne of grace is the lid to the Ark of the Covenant, where the glory cloud rested. And we can read about that. Our audience, they want to go back and review that a little bit. That's in Exodus 25 and chapter 40 the glory cloud resting on the mercy seat. Okay, the throne of mercy, the seat of, of mercy. So he says, 
let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy <laughs> and find grace to help in the time of need. And what he's saying is that we are in the heavenly realm, right? If we are baptized into Jesus and Jesus is one with us and he's taken our human body into the heavenly realm, our human nature, and we in our human bodies and in our, we've been baptized to Christ, we've had a laying on of hands, we've received his body and blood, then we right now, even though we can't see it, we can't fully experience it except through hope, through faith, we stand right now in the holy of holies and are standing before the glory of God. Why? Because Jesus is. If we've been baptized into him, if we become one with his body and blood, then we are standing there. And therefore we should draw near, walk up to that throne of glory, like the high priest walking up to the ark and offer our hands in prayer and know with faith. And we may say, help our unbelief, but we know with faith like that man that we will, if we pray as we ought, to have God hear our prayer. Thank you, Father Sebastian. This is a beautiful, uh, beautiful study. There's so much uh, more we could we could say just based upon what we've begun to say. But I think it's enough for a beautiful meditation and preparation for this coming Sunday. And you know, one I think one of the most important things that we got into today was this point you made about about blessing the sharing of God's life. We talked about that in, in all aspects and every single point we made today is that point is that God who is love and love is the sharing of life with the beloved. God lives that life out and he calls us then to respond to that in prayer, uh, in fasting, in hope, in all of these things. And it makes so simple and beautiful the faith which we have that we don't believe in, you know, the magical formulas for the resurrection and, 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 and juridical frameworks that, you know, balancing uh, the scales of justice. We believe in a God who is love. And because of that, and because of who he is, the eternal God, when he shares his life with us, death is destroyed and we are brought to life. Uh, the whole mystery of, of the Christian faith, the whole mystery of the resurrection is a, the mystery of God's love. And when we encounter that, when we have communion with that, uh, when his life becomes our life, our life becomes his life, then what we can say about the Lord, we can say about us. Uh, and as I said before, St. Paul says, death no longer has dominion over him. And therefore, death no longer has dominion over us. And we can cry out truly that Christ is risen from the dead and that we are risen with him. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.